Before the young people leave us for their children's activities tonight, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're continuing on our series in David's encounters uh, with God, with the world that he was living in, and with the circumstances that surrounded him and his life, and to see what we can learn from them. We're going to read um, the first five verses of 1 Samuel. Samuel chapter 18. There will be other verses that we'll be referring to, so you'll have to open in uh, different portions of the Scripture to, f- to follow what I want to say, but these are the beginning uh, texts of that. Let's hear God's Word. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him, And did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it's so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. Let us pray together. Lord, we ask for your spirit to reveal yourself through Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I find it very difficult to understand how people don't regard Scripture as relevant, even contemporary. The dramas that unfold in the Bible would be an epic in most TV screens. They involve many of the components of life that people encounter many of the situations that they're confronted with daily, both inside and outside of family life. And here we find an account that is heart-wrenching in many ways because of the circumstances surrounding the friendship of Jonathan and David. It started off so wonderful that if it had ended there, it would have been beautiful to read, and a lovely ending to a story. What friendships have been formed, what victories have been gained. Look at the first five verses. After David had finished talking 
with Saul. Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. He wanted him, Saul, close. He already had a family, but here he had someone that he had watched as a boy take on a tremendous giant called Goliath. He knew his integrity. He knew his fidelity to God. He knew his family. um, And he wanted him at the palace. And he had such good friendship emerging with his own son, Jonathan. Everything was sweet uh, in the palace. Everything was good at home. And even though Jonathan had maybe watched the distance emerge between God the Father and his own father's relationship with that God, still things were okay. I'm sure he was concerned about his father, but at least with David in the palace and David's integrity before God, then maybe things would work out. Maybe in some sense David could have that lasting influence on Saul. I mean, Saul would often call David when he was in times of distress to play music to him. And I'm sure with those moments that they were together that there was a a thought in Jonathan's heart that maybe his dad would get things in order. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Here we see something slightly different between that of one encounter with his father and one encounter with Jonathan, um, his friend. He had, on the occasion before Goliath, refused to accept uh, Saul's armor. And yet here he accepts the weaponry of Jonathan. And and you might wonder, why does he reject the... um, the advances of Saul in relation to his protection and that given by Jonathan. I think it's apparent within the relationship that was forming between uh, David and Jonathan that unlike in Saul's case, where Saul was giving it out of a mistrust of God because Saul did not believe that Jonathan could be safe on the battlefield without such armor. Jonathan was giving this out of friendship. He wasn't attempting to displace God in the life of David, but seeking to show him how much he cared for him that he could wear his armor. It had been good for him, and hopefully it would be good as a weapon for David. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. But it didn't last. His success was going to be part of the problem. 
Saul was king and David was a boy soldier who became a man who was particularly skilled in the use of weapons. What could have been an advantage to Israel became a threat to Saul himself. Saul's own ego would shortly be dented because of the success of David. Already he was finding favor with uh, those in the household of Saul. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. So you have a, a situation that's beginning to emerge. Here are two combatants who are involved in trying to protect the nation of Israel. Saul has been a successful soldier. He was able to defend himself and to defend himself well. He had amassed a significant size of army, 200,000 in the past. But as a king, he was already living in defiance of God's commands. He had already been disobedient to a command that God had given him when he attacked the Amalekites as to what he was to take and what he was to leave, who he was to kill. And he had defied that. And his relationship was beginning to unravel before God. So the anchor of his own emotions had been displaced. He didn't have a perspective on life and on God and on David that he should have shared. And beginning to emerge in the nation was this rising star called David. It had begun perhaps that day when David slew Goliath. But now that he had kept David close to himself in the palace, he had begun to notice that amongst his own officers, there was a, a creeping admiration towards David. They still talked about Saul, but now they talked about David in the same breath as Saul. And if it wasn't bad enough that his officers were beginning to show a particular like of this young man and favor towards him, the text says that all the people did the same. So now information about him is emerging out from the palace and from some of the, the victories that they have had to the main populace. And so much so that the women began to, to cry out a, a little song one day, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his tens of thousands. And here, this jealousy began to emerge in the life of Saul, one that he found difficult to actually contain. And that manifests itself in certain attitudes now that, that David or that Saul begins to possess. Follow with me in chapter 18 to verse 25. Saul replied, Say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. So the attendants told David these things. 
he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michal in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him. And he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle. And as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers. And his name became well known. Jealousy was at the heart of Saul's displeasure of David. And jealousy can be a potent, potent toxin in any relationship. And it was so toxic in that relationship that Saul began to become almost to the point of deception to where he had no concern whatsoever for David anymore. And the worst type of deception, giving away your own daughter as if you were bringing David close into the family. And David so much loved the prospect of becoming the king's son-in-law. Isn't that what he says? That he might become the king's son-in-law? Now I am part of the family. Now I'm with Jonathan, who's a relation now of mine in the palace. It can't be sweeter than this. I have a place in the palace representing my people in battle. I am so successful in battle as the Lord equips me. There's such a fulfillment when I go out onto that battlefield. And I am successful for the honor and glory of God. And I am successful for the protection of the palace. And my dear King Saul. And my soon-to-be father-in-law. And my deepest friend, Jonathan. But little did he know. In the heart of Saul was an emerging jealousy that was prepared to manifest itself in deception and betrayal. How sting. How stinging is deception. I thought he cared for me. And all he wants is my death at the hands of the Philistines. Plotting my death, not my wedding. He wants to see the back of me. And whether this, and whilst this is a long introduction to the context of Jonathan and David's relationship, it is an essential one to understand the loyalty and commitment of Jonathan. And they vowed to each other. 
In verse 3 of 18, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And boy, that covenant was going to be tested. That covenant was going to, to be tested to the limit. And in many senses tonight, let's savor the moment as we reflect upon the relationship that David and Jonathan possessed and what significance that that might have for it, for us and what it is grounded in. And in order to do that, please also turn with me to chapter 20, verse 2. Never, Jonathan replied, you're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. Why should he hide this from me? It's not so. In case we were under the illusion that Jonathan and his father saw were not close, they were. They were close. Jonathan had a relationship with his father not dissimilar to many and in fact deeper than most. He loved his father, Saul, as a, as a son would love a father. But he went further than that and he said, listen, there isn't anything my father doesn't share with me. We are that close as a father and son that he confides in me everything that he would seek to do. But he didn't. There was one thing that he was hiding initially from Jonathan, and that was his raging jealousy, until he could hide it no longer, and it became apparent to Jonathan that, that Saul disliked intensely his closest of ever friends. And he takes Jonathan along with the others, and he tells them what he wants to do. He wants to kill David, Jonathan's closest friend. What was it that lay at the heart of this friendship? There are a number of things. The first thing is First Samuel 14, verse 6. I want you to turn with me to it. Jonathan, before he was about to go into battle, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. At the heart of their relationship was a perspective on God. Both had shared it in their early experiences as they went out into battle. Jonathan, too, was a, a well-trained, well-equipped soldier. But first and foremost, he was a disciple of the Lord's. And he had not gone the way of his father. Though he had noticed a decline in his father's spirituality, he had kept his perspective on God. And when Jonathan was confronted with an opposing army, Jonathan said, it doesn't matter what size that army is. 
Should it be a few or many? The reality is that if we go in the Lord's strength, we will be victorious. God is with us. And because God is with us, we have nothing to fear. No battle is too big for the Lord. And so Jonathan and Saul, as fellow compatriots in the army, shared a perspective on God that brought great loyalty to their worship of God as the one true God who provided for them and protected them and equipped them for battle on a regular basis. And they found a soulmate in each other because they shared a perspective on God in a way that Saul did not share with David. And this spiritual affinity began to emerge in the life of Jonathan and David. When we sit down together, we understand God. We understand what God has done. We have a perspective upon who controls us, who watches over us, who provides for us. And when we're in conversation with each other, we're never in competition with one another. I am not vying for my father's affection over you, David. Because I know in these early stages that he brought you close. I have a share that same walk with God that you, David, share. So let's make a covenant with each other that nothing should interfere or disrupt our love for God and for each other. You don't need many friends. You just need good friends. We don't need to be popular with everybody, but we do need some that we share the same perspective about God. We need that soulmate that God places into our lives that we walk with, that we can talk with God about, That somehow, when we're in each other's presence, it is elevated to a place that it could not be otherwise. And there's no friendship on earth that goes deeper than two people who love God together. Who share life together. Who share their struggles together. Who rejoice in their victories together. And for for some... For some, that would be a husband and a wife, but not for Jonathan and David. Though I'm sure that they loved their wives, there was a love between them that was at a different level because there they had God at the center of that relationship in a way that isn't always apparent in every marriage. But within the life of Jonathan and David, they clicked together spiritually and they prized it. And though it was going to be tested and put under significant trial, it would not be broken as a result of that. Isn't that a wonderful friendship to possess? Do you have someone like that? If you don't, pray that God places someone like that into your life. It is a priority prayer that you walk with someone, someone that you can identify with spiritually to a degree that you can covenant towards each other your true loyalty based on your loyalty to God. 
They both shared the same perspective about God. And they shared that oath before God. I want you to turn to 1 Samuel 20, verse 3. Reading from verse uh, 2. Never, Jonathan replied, you're not going to die. Uh, This is in relation to uh, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to take my life? Never, Jonathan replied, you're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. Why should he hide this from me? It's not so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there's only one step between me and death. Here, this news was devastating for Jonathan. His own deepest friend was now besieged by an angry father who sought nothing but David's demise. And it was an awful recognition. You can't even begin to imagine maybe what was going on in Jonathan's heart. I have a father who I love. I have a father who's not in the right place with God. I understand that. I know that. I have a a soulmate called David, my deeply love. And in the perfect world, I would love these two to get on together, but they're not. And I find it difficult to believe that what David is telling me, because my father confides everything in me, that somehow my father has a plot to kill my best friend, a deceptive betrayal, seeking to bring him close in order to have him killed. And though David is blessed by God, and this is increasing my father's rage and jealousy against him, there are certain things that maybe I can do to help. And so, in other passages, Jonathan takes it upon himself to go to his father. He says, Dad, what is this? You know David. He's fought against the Philistines on your behalf as well as that of the glory of God. He has laid down his life for you. There are times on the battlefield when he has put himself in danger because he loved you, because he cares for you. And he knows that you are king at present because that's what the Lord's will is for you. He hasn't done anything to hurt you or offend you. And yet... You seek his death. And his father goes into a rage. And Jonathan begins to see for the first time all the, the filth and dirt of his father's jealousy begin to emerge. 
He sees a so much different Saul in the light of that conversation. He can see the anger. He can see the hate. He can see that he's going to go to any length in order to kill his best friend. And there's nothing that he can do to change it. And why does Jonathan take that risk? Because he's not going to become disloyal to either David, his best friend, or his own God. And he knows that David will be commissioned to be king and take over. And so he, out of loyalty for God, love for his father, and love for his deliverer, tries to intervene. But it doesn't happen. And their relationship continues and increases. And not only has he showed loyalty based on the covenant that he has with God and with David, but shares a perspective on God of the covenant together. Jonathan has submitted himself to work in David's life and in that of his father and in that of God's work without any self-interest. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 35 to 42, read with me. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't this arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing at all of this. Only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, Go, carry them back to the town. And after the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. For we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. And then if you turn to chapter 23, verses 16 and 17. As Saul's son, Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over all. And I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. Look at him with such humility. David, Jonathan comes to David. I'm second to you. And I'm no, I'm not jealous. I love you, David. Though I am the king's son. Though perhaps in an earthly monarchy, 
I would be king. I know God has anointed you. That's why I'm out to you here at Horish. That's why I came to you in the forest. That's why I made sure that I was able to hide you. Because my love for you cannot be altered by the changing circumstances of my father. It grieves me that my father thinks of you in such a way, but I never will. And in those moments, we find a beautiful imagery of a a young man in the presence, or an older man in the presence of David the Younger, saying to him, I will help you find strength in God. I will help you find strength in God. Humility, loyalty to God, loyalty to your friend. There you understand you share the same perspective of God and the same desire to build your brother up in God. Today I will help you find strength in God. This picture of friendship is God-made. And it came under the strongest of trials. And eventually, Jonathan comes to David, said, Jonathan, or David, someday I may no longer be around. I want you to promise me one thing. When I am dead and gone, look after my family. Should the whole house of the palace be wiped out, look after them. And David said, I will. And I think it's chapter 28. Jonathan always remained loyal to his father in terms of fighting alongside of him. Never in pursuit of David, but only the enemies. And as he went out to battle one particular day, he is killed. He dies in battle. And the news filters back to David that Jonathan is dead. And he's broken. And he said, I will honor my promise. So Mephibosheth, the disabled son of Jonathan, is taken under his wing. I will never forget him, nor his loyalty to me, when it was at the most precious, precious points of trial. I had a friend who never lost the love of working and being alongside his father, but stood up for me in those moments of when his father sought to kill me. I had a friend who never saw themselves above me, but 
even though I regarded him as an equal. He placed himself under me. He said, I am second to you. God has done a wonderful thing in your life. If I can play any part in building you up, in strengthening you, whether it's in the forest as you're hiding, whether it's in a cave as my father seeks to destroy you, I will come to you. And if ever I find you, I will strengthen you in the Lord. But one thing, David, when I'm gone, don't forget my family. And David said, I won't. And he didn't. And I want you to turn to Second Samuel chapter 1. And verse 26. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. Now, I know perhaps this has gone on a wee bit longer than needs, but I want to say something, and it has a significant point. Our culture has so misinterpreted this to even infer that their relationship was of a same-sex attraction and that in some way he was a closet homosexual who was seeking to um, embrace Jonathan in that sexualized way is just a complete misunderstanding of that relationship. It is so unbiblical in terms of how you understand the context. First of all, these two guys were loyal, not only to each other, but they saw their loyalty to God and sharing perspective on God is what united them. They understood what the law of Israel taught. And they understood quite well that um, they should not be involved in a sexualized relationship as a result of the affection that they had towards one another and to assume that in some way they were repressing that because of the cultural demands upon them is just forcing our cultural perspectives on their own ancient world. And there's just no comparison. There is nothing in the text or in their lives that suggests that they were unhappy in their married lives, that they were trying to appease a culture of heterosexuality in the sense that they would just take women because that was expected of them. We understand from the, the uh, adulterous affair that David had with Bathsheba that he seems to be uh, attracted to women even in such a way as is breaking the law and he knew how much he had offended God by seeking to do that. So there's nothing in this text to even suggest that they were doing so. And even to suggest based on the kiss that they uh, did to, uh, towards each other is pretty much standard in that ancient context. And within, in fact, uh, some parts of the world where that would be the case. I know that within African context, it's, it's not uh, 
uncommon for a man to hold another man's hand and walk with him. When I went to Bible college, the first experience I had of a Nigerian friend of mine was a rather embarrassing walk down the corridor, um, hand in hand, which was not our culture in Ulster. But uh, within his particular context, there was nothing that he regarded as inappropriate or unacceptable about that. And neither would there be a, a sense in which David and Jonathan had participated in anything that wouldn't be regular within their own environment. But I think the reason I make this point, and I want to make it as strongly as I possibly can, this is an eschatological statement, all right? We, we don't see it necessarily from the from the context, but we do when we begin to read through Scripture. And what it's saying here has staggering impact upon how we perceive relationships. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother, not my lover or my partner, but my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful more wonderful than that of a woman. In fact, what it is doing is desexualizing the context of love. And it's what I would call transsensuality in heaven. Remember Jesus said that there is neither marriage nor given in marriage. We, are, we do not engage in any marital relationships in heaven. Because what binds us in heaven is much superior to the becoming one flesh on earth. The one flesh on earth is um, a product of go forth and multiply, etc., etc., what God required of a populating a planet. And there had to be regulations around how we expressed that and how we engaged in that through marriage and our fallenness. And whilst there is a high degree of love expressed in those relationships and with the families that are created as a result of those relationships, even Jesus himself said, this is not my mother, brothers. These are my mother and brothers. And God is, Jesus is saying, listen, anyone who thinks that, that, that love is a, epitomized solely within the relationship of marriage misunderstands the point. Marriages are temporal relationships on earth, regulated by God so that love can be expressed between two people. But there's a new emerging body called the body of Christ. And within this body of Christ, there is such amazing love and the capacity of which that love may be expressed and understood. And I believe in this passage, we have the demonstration and the illustration of that. What they were doing was not sexualizing the relationship, but desexualizing it. And the best example they could give was that what we understand by our nature of love towards one another of friends far surpasses that that I have had with my wife in terms of sexual love. It has been better, more wonderful than that of a woman. And David could say, I've had plenty of experiences. I've had 700 wives and concubines. I know what the expression of physical love actually is. I have engaged in those moments of intimacy. But what David 
and or what Jonathan and I possess goes far, far deeper than what's celebrated in a marriage bedroom or anywhere else where it may be. It is only temporal in comparison to the extreme joy and intimacy that is found in a God-given relationship. And we have expressed, Jonathan and I, a depth of relationship that I could not find appropriate ways of expressing, even within marriage, that would fall short of some of the moments that Jonathan and I have experienced together. The depth of that friendship centered upon God and our perspective of God and our joy of serving God and our joy of knowing God and our joy of having loyalty against all the pressures of life. We have kept our relationship with God pure. We've kept our relationship with each other pure. And now I have lost a soulmate called Jonathan who had been with me throughout all of my life. And yet, the great, the great joy of transensuality in heaven and the eschatology of the church is this, that what we will experience in heaven, we can get glimpses here in, on, in earth, on earth. And David and Jonathan had a glimpse of eternity on earth. They had a glimpse of the closeness and intimacy of divine love expressed appropriately in a relationship with another man, which was a reflection of God's love and the love that God shares between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is not defined by a marriage, but defined by a nature of relationships that is divine. So you and I, in experiencing divine love and beginning to express it, can find a joyful relationship on earth which begins to foreshadow what we will experience in heaven itself. And that is called the church. That is called the body of Christ. That is the potential that you and I could actually have within our fellowship with each other on a daily or a weekly basis if we could only perceive it. If we could only attempt to engage in it. If we could only begin to foster it. But what we often see is a broken, marred, sinful church that is self-seeking, self-serving, and that is one where agitation and frustration and jealousy and bickering and fighting are the hallmarks of those relationships. And Jonathan and David is a testimony to say it doesn't have to be that way. It can be entirely different. It can be a divine relationship sponsored and supported by God which will bring you such joy that the grief that you will have is unbearable. And David had an unbearable grief that day. I have lost someone so dear to me. But the joy of it is this, that even that was temporary. Because one day, in the presence of God the Father, Jonathan will come to greet him. And so all those who die in Christ. Is that something to look forward to? Is that a friendship in heaven that you want to see? We'll begin experiencing that type of friendship on earth. Hold your friends close as God-given privilege. Let God be the center of it. Experience moments of friendship that elevate you into heaven. 
in terms of your conversations about God because they come to strengthen you. They seek you out in the forests and in the caves and they join you at the risk of their own life. And they say, let me journey with you today. Do you know what age Jonathan was? 50. Give or take a few years. Do you know what age David was? Possibly 20. And people tend to think that these two were two young lads. This was a a man and a boy growing up. 20 years of age. And his brother was like his father. And he cried sore the day he died because he'd lost a brother. Let's make friends. Friendships that last forever. Founded on God. Sustained by God. Blessed by God. Don't let anything come between you. Because God has united you. What is it you say in your marriage day? For this day, for richer, for poor, sickness and health. Why should it be any different for the people called his church? Let no man pull you asunder. It's not just a vow for your wife or your husband. It's a vow to your brother and your sister. Where God is united, let no man divide. Let us pray. Lord, in these moments, pour out your Holy Spirit in power. In Jesus' name we pray.